Um, I'm not going to try and preach through all of Matthew uh, 18, because uh, there's far too much in there, but I will, just for a couple of minutes, I understand that you uh, study this in your cell groups uh, during the coming week. So a few things that you, I think, probably need to look at if you're really going to understand the passage, the whole chapter and what it means. Um, chapter 18, verse 1, at this time, well, what time? Obviously, Matthew puts that little phrase in there because it's in an important link. There's something about chapter 18 that you need to understand that it was at this time, while certain things were happening, while we were at a certain place in Jesus' ministry. Well, why? What place? What time? What was happening? And why then this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What, why was that question so pertinent at this time? I think you need to look at those two issues. The big question that runs through most of the chapter, and I don't want to uh, prejudge things, but I have to say I think the video has probably totally misled you. (laughs) Um, The big issue that runs through this chapter is, who is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about children? Or is he talking about believers? It's not as clear as you might think it is. And actually, probably, the balance of scholarly opinion is that Jesus is using the image of children as a metaphor for children of God, for believers. Uh, You may or may not agree with that, but I think that's a key issue that you need to sort out as to how you're going to understand the passage. And if it is about, well, whether it's about uh, children or, or spiritual children, about believers, either way, there are a number of principles that run through this chapter because it seems to me one of the themes here is nurture. You know, how... God expects children, whether physical children or his spiritual children, how he expects them to be nurtured and cared for. And you might like to look through uh, chapter 18 and try and identify some of those principles or practices of, of nurture. And sometimes they're presented in the positive about how we, are, how we should act and sometimes in the negative, how we shouldn't. Another key principle to think about is that whenever you find something that makes you feel uncomfortable... That's a good indication that it's probably of major importance. So why that stuff about the millstone? Uh, That makes me feel uncomfortable. That's really be better to have a millstone tied around your neck. Um, Again, the video was slightly misleading in that uh, Jesus, who I've I've discovered this morning was American. I never realised this, but that's... uh, um, Jesus uh, threw a little stone... Well, in fact, literally in Greek, what we translate as large millstone is millstone of an ass. Millstone. And it represented, a, you know, obviously millstones what you, you ground wheat with or ground corn with. A millstone of an ass was a stone that was so large it had to be hooked up to a donkey in order to turn it. That is a pretty substantial rock. And Jesus was saying, actually, you'd be better off having one of those tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Really? That's pretty serious. So you might want to just look at that issue and say, what's so important there? And the last thing I would suggest for you to look at is the fact that Matthew groups all his um, teaching, or Jesus' teaching about the kingdom, into five blocks, five sections. And each one has a controlling theme. So obviously the most famous one is the Sermon on the Mount. And that's really about the kingdom lifestyle. Uh, In fact, somebody has said that uh, the Sermon on the Mount answers the question... What does it mean to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? 
That was Jesus' opening sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, Sermon on the Mount tells us the answer to that, what that means. It's about the kingdom lifestyle. So what's being taught in Matthew 18? What's the key integrating theme about the kingdom that Jesus wants his disciples to understand? So those are some questions that I hope will guide you in your thinking on this chapter. And now we're going to come and look at the section uh, that uh, I'm going to focus on, which was the one that came right at the end, which if you've got your church Bibles is page 985, 985, and it's Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to sit again at the feet of the Lord Jesus because we believe that it is his word that we have here in front of us and that by your Holy Spirit he will speak it to us again as with a fresh voice. Help us to hear. And to take that word in, not only to our minds, but our conscience and our will. That we might believe it and obey it. And find it to be a living seed that grows within to shape our lives into Christ's likeness. Father, for this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Very simple message this morning. I'm going to ask you to do one thing. One thing and one thing only. I'm going to ask you to decide to do possibly the most difficult thing that you will ever do as a person. I'm going to ask you to decide to forgive. I'm going to ask you to decide to forgive somebody who probably doesn't deserve it. And I'm not claiming that it's going to be easy, because as I've already said, I think forgiving is one of the hardest things in the world. But I'm asking you to do it because Jesus tells us that that's what it means if we are to be his followers, that we are to forgive our brothers and sisters. Now, the setting here is Jesus has that little uh, teaching in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. And Well, what do I do if he doesn't listen? Well, then you take two others with you. That brings to mind the law of Moses. Everything shall be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Well, if that doesn't work, you take it to the church, the gathered community, and you get them to try and sort of mediate and sort it out. And if that doesn't work, well, you treat him like a pagan or a tax collector, which, contrary to the video, by the way, doesn't mean that you then jump on him and beat him up. (laughs) which seemed to be the interesting teaching that was being uh, foisted there. Um, Basically, how did they treat pagans and tax collectors? How were the disciples to treat pagans and tax collectors? They were to treat them as unconverted. That's the point. They were to treat them as unconverted. Actually, Jesus is saying something profoundly worrying here. If you have a, a, a problem with a brother or sister, and we're assuming that, they're the one at, one at fault. That's the assumption here. In other words, they've sinned against you. 
you go and try and talk it through with them. And they, they don't want to know. They won't listen. Well, okay, so you take two others and get, try and sort it out as a little group, and that doesn't work. And then the, the church try and sort it out, and presumably the church come to a decision, and the person won't even listen then. Well, what do they do? Well, if they're anything like what happens today, they just swan off and join another church. Jesus is saying you should treat them as actually as if they're not a Christian, as if they need to be converted. Now, why would he say that? Because he's, presumably what, he, what he's saying is that part of what it means to have a regenerate heart is that we are willing to accept the discipline of our brothers and sisters. Not that we all like it. Not that we'll find it easy. And he's certainly not saying that we should be a doormat and just let people walk over us. We are obviously entitled to give our side of the story. But that actually part of what it means to be born again is that we do have a heart that accepts discipline and correction. And if they won't even accept that from the church, says Jesus, then you have no reason to assume that they're converted. Whatever else they might say about loving the Lord. Feeling uneasy? Should do. This makes me feel uneasy. Do you, do I, have a heart that accepts discipline? It goes against the spirit of the age, isn't it? One of the things that's been said is that, um, I can't remember if it was in the last hundred years or the last two hundred years, I'm not, I'm not an expert on this, but one of the defining changes in, in our society is the discovery of the individual. That actually in, in previous generations, I said, I can't remember whether this is 100 years or 200 years ago, if you study psychology or philosophy, you might be able to tell me afterwards. But there wasn't such an awareness of the individual. Much more people thought about family, especially extended family. And what counted was the family. And you still see this amongst um, many Asian cultures and Chi uh, Chinese cultures. But one of the things I, I was told by one Chinese family was that it's not unusual for a Chinese family to come over to this country and, and to establish a business with no expectation that they will benefit from it themselves. Not even that their children might, will probably not benefit from it. They are building for their grandchildren's generation. And they are happy to expend their life and their energy, never reaping what they have sown. But they're doing it for the third generation, that they would be blessed and secure and wealthy. Now, you can't do that if you're obsessed with the individual. You can only do that if you're obsessed with the family. And, of course, the community. It wasn't just that the family was center stage. Community was center stage as well. And ideas like the rights of the individual, just, they just weren't at the forefront like they are today. In fact, some people feel that, that, that the psychological understanding of the individual as an autonomous self, sorry, that's sounding a bit, you know, doesn't it? You know, but that kind of way of thinking wasn't even around. That you actually, I, you thought about yourself in your relationships with other people. Well, who am I? Well, I'm so-and-so's I'm son, 
and, you know, or so-and-so's daughter. You know, it, it's my, or, or I'm part of this community. Or, you know, it was that that gave you your identity, not this sort of Freudian uh, or Jung understanding of the autonomous self. We just didn't have that kind of mental language. But now we do. And the self is everything. And what counts is me. And what I want. And what I believe. And how dare you tell me what I should think. And how dare you question how I live. And how dare you suggest that I might be wrong in this situation. And if that's what you think, I'm going to go off on another church where God is. What Jesus is saying is that might be the mind of the 21st century, but it's not the mind of Christ. And it gives no indication that the person has been born again. So Peter was obviously a bit disturbed about this. (laughs) So he comes and has a word with Jesus and he says, "Um, so how many times do I have to forgive then? You know, while we're talking about correction and discipline and all the rest of it. And it's interesting, we have to put those two together. We often take verses 21 and we, and we deal with them individually. That's about forgiveness. But actually, it's put together here with a section about correction. And you have to put the two together. It's about discipline, correction, and forgiveness. Right? And it's not right to separate one from t'other. Okay. Well, Jesus says, uh, Peter says, well, how many times... Shall I forgive? Seven times? Now, the background here is very interesting. Peter feels he's being very generous. Because according to the tradition of many of the rabbis that were around at that time, there are certain verses in the book of Amos. You might want to read through the book of Amos for yourself, see if you can find them. But there are certain verses in the book of Amos that suggest that when it comes to Israel's enemies... God only forgives them three times. And that's what the rabbis taught. God will forgive the enemies of Israel three times. But if you know, one of Israel's enemies sins against Israel for a fourth time, well, God's got it in for them. And thus, the rabbis said, really, it's therefore not necessary to forgive anyone more than three times. Because if God only forgives three times, how dare you think that you ought to be more generous than God? So when Peter comes along and says, shall I forgive seven? He's, he's going double beyond the spirit of the day. He thinks he's being really generous. And after all, seven to the, the Jews was the perfect number, the number of completion, the number of fullness. So it must be, mustn't it, an absolute maximum of seven times. Surely God can expect no more than that. And Jesus' response is, uh, not seven times, but 77 times. In fact, interestingly, in Greek, it's what he literally says is 70 of sevens, which can be 70 times seven, so it can be 490 times. Now, obviously, Jesus is not talking literally. You know, He's not suggesting that you carry a notebook around, right? And ne- next time Steve offends you, you go, uh-huh. Okay. Only 34 left, mate. <laughs> right? It's the... It's the spirit of the passage, isn't it? The spirit of what's being said, which is, no, you go on forgiving. You go on forgiving, just as God goes on forgiving us. And he tells this parable about a king. 
And I don't need to go into the details of the parable because you saw it. But again, it's the verse at the end that troubles us, isn't it? Verse 35, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Really? Now, every preacher that I've ever heard preach on this always begins by saying, well, of course, Jesus doesn't mean this literally. Well, I'm not going to say that this morning. Who am I to try and explain away the words of Jesus? I think we ought to feel uncomfortable about these words because they challenge our complacency. They challenge our easy believism. They challenge the idea that, you know, I can come to church, hear a sermon, sing some songs, Jesus is in my heart, that's all that counts. Well, I think we've seen what that's done to the church, haven't we? Is not easy believism one of the reasons why the church in this country is so weak and so divided? Actually, we need to be made to feel uncomfortable. I don't think you can press this verse to say that a a born-again Christian is going to lose their salvation on Judgment Day. I don't think that's what this verse is about. I don't think we should press it to mean that. But I do think, just like the previous section where Jesus was saying, you know, if, if, if somebody won't listen to, to discipline, there's no reason that you should actually believe that they're a true Christian. I think in the same way Jesus is saying, if somebody won't forgive their brother, there is no reason for believing that person is really born again. That's hard, but we need to hear it. Now, first thing, please notice that Jesus is restricting this teaching to brothers and sisters in the church. I think there are issues around forgiving people outside, and you know, I, I know and, and have worked with people who are trying to work through horrendous issues in their lives. People I know who were physically and sexually and emotionally abused by a parent or a, or a husband or a relative. I mean, just, I mean, some of the stories that I've heard are absolutely terrifying. And one of the things that worries me, also often the response of the church is, and you must forgive that person. And if you don't, you're blocking God working in your life. Now, can we just step back for a minute here and think about that? I know what we're trying to say. What we're trying to say is, actually, for your own healing, you need to come to a place where you can forgive this person. To live all your life with unforgiveness towards that person is not going to damage them, but it's sure going to damage you. And it's, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Yeah? All you're doing is drinking more poison. Okay. So I, think, I, think what we, I know what we're trying to say. But that's not how it comes across. 
how it comes across to the person who is hurt and broken and injured is actually you were sinned against, but in fact, we're going to make you feel guilty. We're going to put more guilt and more shame into your life just in case you haven't got quite enough of it as it is. And all too often we we just trample all over the sacred ground of people's innermost feelings. So if that is you this morning, and I don't know any of you, your backgrounds really, but if that is you this morning, please hear what I think God would say to you. For your own sake, for your own health, for your own healing, you need to move to a place where you can eventually forgive the person that did it to you. But it will take time. And God and God's people will walk through that journey with you. For some people, it can take years. Do not beat yourself up if you haven't got to that point yet. But at the same time, don't make peace with your bitterness. Accept that you need to move to a place where one day, yes, I can and will forgive. However, what Jesus is talking about here is brothers and sisters in the church. Okay? And what amazes me is how good we are at not forgiving each other. Because forgiveness is a commitment. Forgiveness is a decision. And forgiveness is an attitude. Let's just unpack each one of those for a moment. First of all, it's a commitment. When you become a Christian and when you join the church, one of the commitments that you make is that you are going to walk in a lifestyle of forgiveness. And I think for many of us, nobody ever told us that. So I'm telling you it now. Okay? You need to make that commitment that part of your lifestyle of what it means for you to be a follower of Jesus, is you will walk in a life of forgiveness. Because that's what it means to name his name. But secondly, having made a commitment, it's a decision. Somebody said to me about marriage, is that when you stand at the front and give your vows, you're making a commitment. But every day you have to make a decision to live those out. And for far too many of us, our spirituality is about how we feel. And we've kind of got drunk on a, on a great orgy of emotion and feelings. And part of the reason for that was, as far as I understand my church history, in the 1950s and 1960s, emotions weren't allowed in church. It was all very cerebral. You know, and if somebody put their hands up during the, one of the hymns, you said, uh, don't worry, the toilets are over there. You know, um, there, there was no kind of expressiveness of emotion in, 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 in worship. And then I suppose through the charismatic renewal, we discovered that it was okay to worship God with our emotions. It was okay to enable our feelings to be part of what we offered to God. And if you think about the Psalms, the Psalms are full of all kinds of emotions and feelings. But if you read the Psalms, their emotions and their feelings are where they start. They're not where they finish. 
David and the other psalmist might say, well, you know, today, God, I'm feeling like this and I've got real anger in my heart or I'm struggling with this or I can't understand that and I've got doubt and all the rest of it. That's where they start, but very quickly, where they end up with is God. Yeah. And the problem for us in too much of our Christian lives is that our emotions are where we start, where we continue and where we finish. Well, you know, does that feel right to you? Who cares how you feel? You can't, can't discern truth by how you feel. You can't determine reality by what feelings you have this morning. Okay. Therefore, you cannot as a Christian decide that you're going to... use the word again. Decide, but you can't decide that you're going to live your Christian life on the basis of how you feel. You have to decide to live your Christian life on the basis of what you decide. And you have to decide to forgive. You have to decide to forgive. And the third thing is that then leads to an attitude. Forgiveness is an attitude. It's a way of being in the world. It's a way of living your Christian life. It's a commitment. It's a decision. It's an attitude. So why should we do it? And this is really the main thing I just want to focus on by way of conclusion. How... Why and how can we forgive? And I think in this parable is the actual, the key. The servant, we're told that he owned, he owed 10,000 talents. Well, a talent was a huge sum of money. Yeah, huge. A talent was far more than most average Jewish workers would have earned in their lifetime. So 10,000 was a ridiculous sum of money. In fact, I understand that in common parlance, you know, like when we sometimes say, oh, that's a gazillion. What does that mean? It just means it's a huge number, a gazillion, right? It's just, well, Jews weren't so comfortable with huge numbers like we are. You know, what they would have made of our public debt, I just, I think I would have been, you know, would have been, yeah. But in the kind of Jewish and, and Greek Roman culture of the day, 10,000 was a way of saying gazillion, yeah? So this is just a ridiculous, enormous amount of debt that nobody could ever repay. It was beyond ever. He would have never been able to pay off the interest on the debt. So the master says, well, that's you and the family. Slavery, get something for you, flog you off. And he begs, and we're told that the master, you know, what does he beg? Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. No, you won't. (laughs) No, you won't. The point, that's the point. The debt is too great. You cannot pay it back. The servant has pity, or the master rather, has pity or mercy on him. And he cancels the debt. Doesn't give him more time. Doesn't say, well, let's see if we can renegotiate all these into one easy payment loan, you know, that you can pay off so much per month. He just wipes it clean. Forgiven. Chap then goes out and he finds somebody who owes him. Let's find it. Verse 28. 300 denarii. Sorry, 800 denarii. That's about three months' wages. So it's actually quite a large sum. It's not pennies, it's not peanuts. It's about three months' wages. That's quite a lot. 
but absolutely nothing compared to a gazillion talents that he owned. That he owed. And of course, he refuses to, to forgive. He refuses to cancel the debt. And you can see where this is going, can't you? Every time I refuse to forgive a brother, what I'm saying is, I don't care about the size of the debt that God forgave me. What I care about is the size of the debt that you owe me. And God says, that attitude is unacceptable. Every time, please think this through, I know I'm going over this, but I just want to get this clear in my mind. Every time that you refuse to forgive a brother or sister in the church, what you're effectively saying to God is, I don't care how much it costs Christ on the cross. I don't care about the blood that was shed. I don't care about the wounds in his wrists and his feet. I don't care about the agony he went through. I don't care what it cost you, Father, to slaughter your own son in exchange for my... I don't care about that. What I care about is what she said to me last week. Can you wonder that Jesus says that's an unacceptable attitude? That's an attitude that gives no indication at all that you're really born again? Because the attitude should really be what you did to me. What is that compared to what I've done to God? What Really, what is that compared to what I've done to God? And you can begin to see why Jesus says that it may be an indication that you're not truly born again. Because maybe the problem is you don't realise what you've done to God. Perhaps you don't realise the size of your own debt. Perhaps you think it's just a few pennies that you owe God. That you don't realise that it is a gazillion talents and that if you worked all your life you could never even pay off the interest on the debt. And that your only hope is that unless God in his mercy cancels the whole thing out, you will be damned. And justly so. But it gives us the clue, of course, of how we should forgive. That if you focus on the affront that's been caused to you, of course you'll struggle to forgive. But if you can begin to think about the affront that you have caused God, if you can begin to think about all the brokenness, the selfishness, the sinfulness, the hurtful, the untrue, the unfaithful, the petty, the slanderous, the malicious, the lustful, the deceitful things that you have done that have offended and hurt God. If you can focus on that, well, what's that compared to what Judith said to me last month? Think about your own debt that God has graciously wiped clean. And then you'll find the grace to forgive your brother or sister. So I'll finish where I started. I want you to make a decision. I want you to make a decision that you're no longer going to walk in offence. Because that's what some Christians like to do. We like to walk in offence. 
Yeah? We like to be offended. Jesus says, walk in forgiveness. Is there somebody that you haven't forgiven? Is today the day that you need to make the decision to write the letter or make the phone call or have the conversation? And if it's going to be a difficult one, maybe you need to say to, to David or Steve or John, I think maybe you'll need to come with me because this is, this is not going to be easy. Perhaps it's Steve or David or John that you need to have the conversation with. <laughs> I'm not asking you to do this because it's easy. I'm asking you to do it because it's right. It's because it's what Christ calls you to if you're going to walk in his name with his spirit within you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for the many of my brothers and sisters here this morning who know there is somebody that they need to forgive. Maybe it's somebody at another church. Maybe it's somebody that goes back 15, 20, 30 years, but they know there's a letter that has to be written or a phone call that has to be made. Or maybe it's just simply a prayer that needs to be offered that says, yes, Father, I cancel that debt. I wipe their slate clean. I forgive them. Father, please help us to be a people who commit and decide to walk in forgiveness, not in offense. That we might be pleasing to you and honor the name of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Darren, you don't have to wait there, mate. We just pray for you. Thank you.